पंजेरा ड्राइव टाइम Yeah, weekly world economic report. Uh, so many things happening uh, on provision in our menu. We might change it. Six hundred employees depart the SABC as broadcast uh, costs costs. Oil prices ease after the Suez Canal traffic resumes. Yes, the ship is free. And Johnson and Johnson agree to supply four hundred million COVID nineteen vaccines to the African Union. That is good news. Online for comment is senior researcher, Department of Political Science at the University of Pretoria, Dr. Jason Musyoka. Twitter handle at Jason Musyoka. Dr. Musyoka, welcome. Thank you so much, Shafiq, for having me, and hello to the listeners. And quickly, just to jump out of our box, um, I'm sure you watched with keen interest uh, the NEC report last night. Um, the showboating part is uh, Ace Magashuli. We're not going to talk about that. But what I found interesting was that the president spent, uh, or the NEC spent uh, quite a bit of time talking about uh, the economic situation in the country and perhaps a way out of it. How much do you think this NEC report, number one, will give confidence to investors and number two, to our, to our economy? Yes, uh, Shafiq. So I have taken keen interest on what's been going on uh, within the uh, NEC, NEC uh, discussions and not least the tail end of it, which, of course, we know there were delays on the, um, uh, the, the president's report to, or address to the, the, the uh, NEC, partly because of the showdown between himself uh, and his followers and the faction that supports Arthur But just back to your point, I think there has been progressive, there has been uh, discussions about how we come out of the current situation. Um, and unfortunately, I mean, keep in mind that last year in August, we did have the economic recovery uh, and transformation document that was also released by um, by the Economic Committee of the ANC. And all of this, it, it, we are going back to a place we were, in my assessment, somewhere between 1996 and on to 2006, where we had, uh, over that period, over that decade, we had so many policy documents that came out. There were white papers that were coming out. There was the gear policies. There was the SGSA. There was the RDP. There were so many iterations of development policy uh, on a national level, and some generated from within the ANC, others pushed by the state itself. And ultimately, of course, what happened was clearly a, a, a breakdown of the party itself because of ideological differences. That is the interesting thing about the, the political history in South Africa. It is the fact that uh, ideologies still hold, and when they do, they do tend to divide, especially the governing party, as we know, but not just that, but also opposition. So having said that, if we look at the, um, the document put forward now, it does emphasize on investment, but we also see, especially the Ramaphosa faction, pushing forward with uh, reforms, and that what I can see is it is not going to be well received by the unions. It's not going. The, propo- the proposals, proposals are not going to be well accepted by the Magashule faction. So we are, in my view, the moment that you hit that kind of a political brick wall, implementation of any sorts of recommendations become extremely difficult because you have to find consensus 
somehow a reasonable consensus, not a 100% consensus, that consensus is highly unlikely. So very quickly, where does it go from, from here then? Because it appeared to be quite um, a, a, a strong statement given the circumstances. Uh, are we just dealing with um, an internal power struggle trying to resolve itself or are the interests of the nation at heart here? My assessment, again, is that from the Ramaphosa faction, there are efforts to try and recover the national economy, the country itself, from the crisis it's in. And uh, we know that because of the pragmatic nature of which not just the statement made, but also the, the effort made previously about pragmatic, you, you can clearly see a pragmatic ideology from the Ramaphosa uh, faction. So this proposal made is reasonably um, pragmatic in, in my assessment and, and asking the way forward. It would, of course, to um, try and now raise awareness of it. The cabinet, given it does uh, get uh, the Ramaphosa faction uh, support, you you obviously will have the state supporting it. Uh, so that, that, that side of things is likely to go ahead. What is unlikely to go ahead is the political showdown now, where the the so-called radical economic transformation uh, uh, wing, which is part of the Malashula faction, the, the sense is that these these kinds of propositions are not drastic enough. They they are not uh, radical to use their own term. Problem with that is that you are dealing with an economy that is highly fragile, and whether you should go for the juggler in terms of um, transformation at the moment and and, and perhaps uh, neglect the social cohesion that you should be dealing with, those are hard questions that are not necessarily asked by the left-leaning wing of, of the um, of the NC. I think that's where the, the, the gridlock is likely to end up. Yeah, so in summary then, um, the NEC statement says something but uh, there's still a lot of complexities that we might have to face. Absolutely. As we've seen historically, the reality is that what is said is not going to be received as gospel. It's going to face a lot of backlash, uh, especially given just the nature of the ANC itself, the fact that you have an alliance that is sitting in with the unions um, who are still part of the governing alliance, and of course uh, the South African Communist Party, so that, and then, then having said that, there is a wing of the NC itself that is more leaning towards the unions. So that there is really the engine room where um, things really happen. And to push through that kind of gridlock is a very, very difficult task. As Ramaphosa himself knows, um, and as Becky also knows, it cost him the presidency at the time. So those are hard questions that one has to almost make a commitment to the extent that you're willing to sacrifice positions or political popularity on the basis of those policies. And of course, you just mentioned the unions. Here's a headache for the unions. 600 employees uh, depart the SABC. I think it's Section 189. Uh, I suppose the tragedy here is that the people who are being retrenched are the innocents and perhaps the guilty ones are still in circulation. And firstly, it's correct that uh, the SABC invoked Section 189 of the Labor Relations Act, which states that an organization is allowed to, um, to retrench 
depending on its operational needs. So if, if, if a company feels that it's not able to continue carrying, it, carrying on uh, with, uh, with the workers, they are given that leeway under Section 189. But, of course, you have to demonstrate that there are operational pressures that you need to yield to. At that stage, uh, the SABC, there was a case in court in January, um, and the unions took the SABC to court trying to appeal so that uh, SABC does not go forward with the retrenchments, which, as we know, it has this kind of retrenchment that have been on the table for quite some time now. So, unfortunately for the unions, the Labor Court ruled against them and granted the SABC the authority to continue with uh, retrenchments based on its operational pressures. But say now where we are, we are looking at uh, retrenchment of 621 employees who are supposed to be laid off by end of March, which is tomorrow. And of that, there there are two categories. There are 346 employees who offered uh, voluntary uh, resignations, and there is another slightly smaller number, 275 whose positions became redundant. Now, if you look at that breakdown, those whose job positions became redundant are actually more of your lower-level, less-skilled employees. And uh, to come to the point you made earlier, these individuals are the ultimate casualties because, keep in mind, most of them don't have very high pensions and and all of the uh, social security measures that are offered to the higher-earning category, which could volunteer um, to to resign. So ultimately, then, the the, the key casualties are the innocent, and, and that is very unfortunate given that, as far as we know, the key executives, uh, starting from the, the former SABC CEO and, and his cohorts, on the, really on the top of the ladder, they are the culprits for the malfunctioning of the SABC. So ultimately, again, come back to a point I always make, capitalism really works in that way, where the innocent, um, the innocent are the ones who are sacrificed on the altar of capitalism. Yeah, and of course, um, there's talk of oil prices easing after that huge ship um, got stuck in the Suez Canal. How that happened, uh, that's another story. Um, when I see oil prices ease, is this going to play into the South African situation where uh, April we promised massive increases in the price of fuel? So um, the, the, the vessel that uh, hit a wall in the Suez Canal, um, as we know, it has, as of today, been freed, and it's caused a lot of uh, backlog. Apparently, the, the canal passes uh, up to about 421 vessels uh, you know, um, on a daily basis. And what you're dealing with now is a backlog there. So although there is a bit of easing, uh, given that the, the canal transmits about 1 million barrels of oil per day, um, but I also need to add that it transmits about 12% of global trade, not just the oil, but uh-huh. trade in general. Uh-huh. So if you consider the impact on the global oil prices and, and the global, oil, uh, global trade, um, it, there is going to be a delayed impact a little bit, given that there is a backlog that needs to be cleared. You had supplies, you had um, 
the, the oil producers who had to cease producing until the backlog is cleared or what had already been dispatched arrives at the designated ports. So that delayed impact we had in a couple of weeks of a, a bit of the, um, the, the, the turbulence there as far as the oil prices are concerned. But to respond to your question directly, in South Africa, unfortunately, our domestic issues here and condition, economic conditions require that uh, we look for money everywhere. And part of the increases of prices of oil is, is really the increase of oil taxes, uh, fuel taxes. So we are, we are not going to experience uh, any, any meaningful decline, even all the global uh, trends uh, suggest that there is a, uh, going to be a slight decrease of oil once this backlog clears up. But for us here in South Africa, unfortunately, it's really going to be uh, just uh, you know, a tough time uh, until the economy really stabilizes, which is when we hope that we can begin to see a bit of decline on the fuel taxes, hopefully. Hopefully. In our final minute, J&J, Johnson & Johnson, have agreed to supply 400 million COVID-19 vaccines to the AU. That's good news. Yes, it is. Uh, certainly for the African states who have been grappling, there has been a lot of, as we know, um, there, there's been a lot of... Um, uh, you know, conspiracy theories all over in the continent and fears and suspicions. But uh, it seems that, by and large, uh, Johnson & Johnson seem to be reasonably accepted, not least because statistically, when you look at the scientific evidence, it does suggest that uh, Johnson & Johnson has the, uh, the minimal side effects uh, of the vaccine. That's important to note. And because Africans are very suspicious of uh, these this kinds of Western-developed uh, vaccines and given the history of colonialism and a lot else, uh, you can understand where the suspicion is coming from. The scientific evidence suggests that for Johnson & Johnson, the side effects are reasonably mild and, and not as drastic as AstraZeneca, which we know it was potentially causing blood clots. Uh, P-Pfizer as well, um, there are side effects that are a little bit more acute than Johnson & Johnson. And then that said, though, the most critical aspect of this rollout of J&J uh, &J in the continent is that they have given rights to Aspen farmers uh, or farmers in South Africa who will be doing um, manufacturing. So in other words, they will have a plant located here which will be, um, South Africa is going to take an, uh, something upwards, I think, of 30 million or something like that, and the rest will go to the continent. So that gives even more credibility. And in terms of transport of the vaccine to the rest of the continent, it's easier, it's cheaper, and it's also more uh, trusted by fellow Africans. Dr. Jason Masioka, Senior Researcher, University of Pretoria, regularly uh, chats to us in Weekly World Economic Report, as always. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Weekly World Economic Report on Drive Time.